Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm John Aglianby, and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. Many of the world's best-loved animal species are facing extinction because of the loss of their habitats or organised poaching. This illegal wildlife trade also threatens and marginalises the people living alongside the endangered animals. Wildlife conservation used to be largely financed by wealthy donors and governments. But now, efforts to attract institutional investors are showing significant potential. As a recent rhino bond launched by the Zoological Society of London, the FT's seasonal appeal partner this year, showed. With me to discuss the bond and the potential of conservation finance to make a difference is Oliver Withers, the Zoological Society of London's head of conservation finance, and Oni Patan Power, an expert in impact investing and innovative finance. Oliver, can you start by giving us an overview of the extent of the problem we're facing? How fast is the world's wildlife disappearing and why does this matter? Good day, John. Thanks for having us. It's a really important question. Unfortunately, the answer is not great. We're under enormous pressures, not just from illegal wildlife trade, but really from just human development as well. What we face today is 75% of the world's terrestrial landscapes have been impacted by humans in some way. So that leaves us 25% of the surface of this planet in land terms that's actually available in true virgin bush or wildlife, as we would call it. When we look at the oceans, that number is actually very similar as well. Around 66% of the oceans have been impacted by humans. And unfortunately, what that means is that we are facing a massive risk of decline in species. So we could lose up to a million different species over the next couple of decades. And as much as there is this argument that there is a degree of natural extinction process that occurs, the reality is that we as humans are rapidly expediting that mass extinction process. And why does this matter? We don't know yet what the specific value is of wildlife. But intrinsically, we do know that it's absolutely vital that for us as humans that we coexist with biodiversity. We see that in the simplest forms of protecting water sources, which we as humans vitally need to survive on this planet. And so whilst we can't give necessarily a perfect number that values biodiversity, we can also very quickly point to the key role that biodiversity plays in keeping us humans alive on this planet. The figure of 400 billion a year is often used for the amount needed for global conservation. I mean, how is this number reached and what should it be spent on? John, it's an excellent question. I mean, that 400 billion number is not a perfect number, but we have to start somewhere and putting some sort of value on this. That particular number came off a report uh, that was done a few years ago. What that report looked to do was look at the more mature industries, such as forestry, agri-tourism, and try and put a value on those industries becoming fully mature and becoming fully sustainable. That ignores a whole lot of the other biodiversity that's left on the table. So what it highlights to us is that 400 billion is a really big number, and it's probably not big enough for what we really need. I think in terms of how we spend that money, we as a conservation sector need to put our hands up and say we can do better. But I think what we're seeing is through the introduction of really innovative financial products, we're seeing a better deployment of capital. And so what that ultimately means is that we should be able to, as a sector, deliver improved management effectiveness and improved cost effectiveness. The money that is in the market now needs to do more and it needs to go further. Only turning to you, if one looks from sort of the sidelines, it seems that conservation organizations and institutional investors, you know, they've traditionally had very different working cultures. They don't often meet. So how is Oliver and others in the conservation world going to raise the money? For the institutional funders, 
it's very much about valuing what the conservation and the biodiversity space brings. And in doing that in a way that speaks the language, we know it's very important to have agriculture, to have aquaculture. We know that that plays a huge role in the economies and just in people's lives. We also know that um, businesses are suffering from climate change. We know that sustainable forestry is needed. We know that tourism drives economies. And so when we start to couch biodiversity into the types of language and understanding where it fits in the role of the supply chains of other large parts of economies, then it starts to make more sense. So to give you an example, insurance companies are realizing that alien vegetation and soil degradation is eating into their profits because it's causing mass floodings and other types of events that essentially are reducing their ability to make money. So one of the things that they need to do is find a way to work with companies that are creating social businesses and other types of projects to implement ways to reduce soil degradation. Now, on the other side, they also need to be held accountable. So the French government announced this week that they will start doing stress tests on financial institutions, banks, and insurance companies' climate risk. So both from the bottom up, the insurance companies are realizing that they need to tackle this because it has an effect on their bottom line, but also from the top down where governments can say, this is something that you need to think about and you need to think about it because there will be incentives, both from the positive and negative, that will mean that the cost of not paying attention to life on land and life underwater will become a business cost. And as soon as it becomes a business cost, then not only are the things that they're evaluating now starting to be important, but potentially the things in the future. And so as we start to create better ways of valuing, it will be a different proposition. Putting a value on biodiversity, is that still a challenge in the funding industry? A hundred percent. You know, one of my colleagues at Oxford often says there are no such things as externalities. There are only things we have externalized. And that's very true. So we need everything about how our planet operates to work for most companies to exist and for individuals to exist. And yet so little of that is actually priced. Being able to establish risks around climate and the actual shadow costs of not addressing climate change have grown in recent years. And so you'll see when there's reporting around hurricanes or the natural disasters, there will often be a portion of the reporting that says that it it is estimated that climate change contributed to X amount of this damage. We're starting to get a little bit better at doing some of that shadow pricing and understanding what the costs are, but it's going to be up to both governments to do this, but also companies to look and to say, if we were to do X, what potential impact would that have both on our own internal balance sheets, but also kind of on our stakeholders, so on our supply chain, on the farmers that we work with. Oliver, I only just said we're getting a little bit better. Um, let's go into a bit of specifics. I mean, at ZSL, are you getting a little bit better in engaging with the financial sector? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think the insurance industry, they are far more proactive at putting a value on this stuff. And that's assisting us in identifying opportunities. So, for example, the insurance industry sees enormous values in mangroves being rehabilitated. And so that's something that we are able to work with and channel funding out of that financial sector into mangrove rehabilitation because it has a valued impact. What we're seeing, for example, on the Rhino Impact Bond, crudely what this impact bond model is, it's an outcomes-based payment system. And so instead of traditional donors underwriting a number of interventions up front, and hopefully they get 
outcomes and impact at the end of that process. In this model, we actually transfer that implementation risk to the private sector, to investors. And really the hypothesis here is that we are creating a better framework for deploying capital into these protected areas, which gives these protected area managers better adaptive management capabilities. And the reality is, is that in the context of the illegal wildlife trade, you know, these are criminal syndicates that are international. They don't send a memo to say we're coming over the Western fence line at 2 a.m. They are profit maximizers. And so we need to be able to enable our protected area managers to react to the realities that they face every single day. And that's really what the Rhino Impact Bond is doing. It's providing that framework to allow for better implementation of interventions. We actually have an enormous body of knowledge and science around rhino conservation. We know how to make more rhinos and we know how to protect rhinos, but we need the framework to enable that. Do the investors actually get their money back? They do. Great question. I mean, essentially what happens is the investors provide the upfront capital. If we are able to deliver the pre-agreed number of rhinos at the end of the five-year term of the Rhino Impact Bond, traditional donors who are outcome payers will pay back the investors, their principal plus a small yield. For those donor outcome payers, it's a game changer for them because they only pay when there are results delivered at the end of the five-year period instead of underwriting all of the interventions up front and taking on all of that implementation risk. And, you know, the impact bond is not fit for every site, every type of circumstance. It's one of the arrows in the quiver. In that circumstance, we are seeing a lot of success in the ability to improve management effectiveness and cost effectiveness in actual delivery of programs. And Oni, do you think that there are enough arrows in the quiver? There are enough arrows in the quiver. It's just that most people don't know how to find the quiver, I would say. There are a lot of opportunities that we have in innovative financing. So the work that I do essentially looks across the spectrum, both at the individual deal or project level and at the fund or mechanism level. So there are ways in which we can structure a mechanism like an impact bond or an outcomes fund that use blended finance and other types of finance to be able to bring together different types of investors and different types of risk return impact preferences. Can you explain what you mean by blended finance? So blended finance is the idea of putting together different types of investors into a deal or into a fund or into a funding structure. So you might have a government sitting alongside a traditional financial institution. There might be a foundation involved. So, for instance, a foundation that's very interested in conservation might be willing to put money into a fund and actually put it in what's called first loss, which means that that funding will be the first funding that is used in case there are losses in the fund. The next set of funding potentially might be from a government or a development finance institution. They might be willing to sit where they are a riskier type of either debt or equity, but they won't necessarily look for a what we call risk-adjusted return. So if they were in the private sector and they were only pricing it off of a risk model, they would potentially ask for a higher return. But in this case, they might actually look for a slightly lower return that makes sense because a development finance institution gets taxpayer money. So it's technically 0% cost of capital. And then you might have a financial institution, which before this wouldn't have been interested in coming into, for instance, a fund that was looking at investing in 
companies that sit just outside of conservation areas and create jobs for individuals. So it might have been too risky for a financial institution before. But since there is a foundation sitting at the very bottom of the capital structure willing to lose their money first, and then there's a development finance institution that bears the next amount of risk, for a traditional financial institution now, this funding structure looks like something that they can get through their risk model and looks interesting to them. So by blending at that stage the different types of funding, we can actually allow the development finance institution to get what is called leverage. So you might have the foundation putting in $5 million, the development finance institution putting in $20 million, and then a financial institution putting in $30 million. So then each of those funders gets additional private capital that is sourced in um, into this type of investment. But what's going to help drive the whole sector and particularly more traditional finances into accepting greater risks? It's not about asking financial institutions to necessarily take more risk. So for instance, um, a pension fund trustee might say we aren't willing to take more risk because the actual pensioner at the end of the day doesn't necessarily want to um, have more risk that they won't be paid out their pension. But there is something about assessing risk. So, for instance, um, the European Investment Bank has said they will no longer fund any non-renewable type um, of um, energy going forward. And others are coming out to say that, too, which means that if a pension fund has a lot of investments in coal and other types of non-renewable energy, actually their risk is significantly higher potentially than what they've priced. People have said to me, essentially, that the wildlife conservation finance sector is about a decade behind climate financing. Do you agree with this? And where will wildlife conservation financing be in 10 years time? Yes, I absolutely agree. The Global Impact Investing Network puts out a report on impact investing every year. This year, they estimated there was about $500 billion worth of impact investing. Impact investing is investing that looks for positive social and environmental returns, as well as positive financial returns. Now, what's interesting is that conservation finance was less than 1% of that investment. What we see is two things. One, is that conservation finance is stuck in one of those areas where it's either philanthropy and particularly targeted on animals or on specific geographic locations, or it is tourism, high-scale tourism that is used to subsidize. And those are very different models. What's happened in other thematic areas of impact investing, like agriculture and healthcare, is that there's been this whole middle of the spectrum where we're looking at social businesses and responsible businesses that can actually tackle these problems and be able to return financial capital to investors and lenders. And so there's a missing middle there for conservation. The other thing I would say is that conservation actually is agriculture and healthcare and everything that has to do with humans using resources effectively, having sustainable livelihoods. And so some of it's a reframing issue. Obviously, I'm coming into the conservation space from other sectors, and I see all this overlap between the work we're doing in other sectors and actually how it affects our climate and biodiversity. So I think some of it's a little bit of reframing to understand how those things are intertwined. 
And Oliver, what does your crystal ball tell you? Yeah, I mean, I think Oni's 100% right. I think if we, again, tear down the fences and look at this as a landscape and, and a system and not just these individual components, and we've spoken about blended financing coming in, I think we need to acknowledge that as it stands today, the value of wildlife is largely esoteric in many cases. And so as we see this sector grow, we will see better valuations on wildlife come through and we make these sometimes stretched connections to tourism, etc. But the reality is, is that to Oni's very point, if we reframe this as actually a sustainable development discussion instead of a conservation or biodiversity discussion, we are accessing way more funding that's out there. And, you know, that's really important going back to the risk discussion because, you know, development finance institutions are important, but they need as government-funded entities to embrace the idea of investing in biodiversity and what that might look like. And so, you know, for me, where do I see it in 10 years' time? It's blended financing coming in, but it's blended returns coming out. And Oni used an example of a pension fund earlier. You know, that's run as a balanced mandate. And so we ideally, in 10 years' time, are actually running our protected area landscapes as a balanced mandate that we can generate financial returns in that landscape through sustainable agriculture, renewable energy, et cetera. But that business, that economic growth needs to be done in a sustainable manner that's partnered with the biodiversity that it's running alongside. And critically, that third piece of social inclusion, you know, making sure that the people around biodiversity are actually benefiting from it. And, you know, we've seen out of the IPBES report at the beginning of this year that protected areas that are run by communities have less biodiversity loss. You know, there is a result there for us. So 10 years time, we're running this as sustainable landscapes instead of these individual component building blocks. So keep your eyes on the pension funds and when they go, then we'll know that we're really making progress. Well, Oliver and Oni, thank you both very much indeed. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to help support the work of the Zoological Society of London, please follow the link in our show notes. And don't forget, if you missed our recent episodes on Taylor Swift and the music industry, UK economic policies and the election, or the global pensions crisis, you can subscribe and listen on all the usual podcast platforms. 